Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Just before we jump in, today's podcast is brought to you by my premium coaching program, Lean Gut Mind Method. In this busy world, women struggle to prioritize their health and they constantly find themselves frustrated with a lack of results. Lean Gut Mind Method coaching service provides expertise, personalization, and a proven system of tools so that women find themselves empowered to live their best lives in a body that they choose. If you're a female who struggles with weight loss, emotional eating, and poor gut health, and you're ready to change once and for all, let me and my team help you. Lean Gut Mind Method is the last nutrition program you will ever need to invest in, and the first program you will see lasting results from. Let us show you the way. Apply for my premium one-on-one coaching program at www.leangutmindmethod.com. This week's podcast episode is with Sanjay Juneja, who is an MD and a triple board certified hematologist and medical oncologist. Sanjay has a passion for education and learned quickly through his training that the biggest battle with cancer is often not the cancer itself, but the intimidation that comes with the unknown. He started providing educational content on TikTok to help families understand the rapidly evolving medical landscape and clear up any myths around medical care. On this week's podcast episode, Sanjay and I first start off by discussing what fatigue is and some medical reasons behind fatigue. We then discuss the different types of anemia, major symptoms of anemia, who is most at risk, some complications if we don't correct it, and other nutrients that may be associated with fatigue, such as B12. If you or someone that you know has low iron or anemia, please send them this podcast so they can have a listen. And please follow Sanjay on social media. He is at the Doc which is T-H-E-O-N-C-D-O-C, or visit the doctor-approved resource website, drpedia.com. Welcome, Sanjay, to the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you on. I've been following your journey on TikTok, um, and I'm stoked to just have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. You know, I appreciate everything you do, and I think people are really starved, no pun intended, for kind of more <laughs> knowledge and guidance on on some of these questions that arise with nutrition and health. So I'm, I'm excited to provide some insight on, on that part of it. 100%. And today we'll be chatting all things iron deficiency and fatigue. But as we um, established just from our chat before we jumped on this podcast, we could talk about 100 different topics around nutrition, oncology, um, hematology, couldn't we? There's just so many things that we could we could really share with our listeners today. Yeah, and I love it because, you know, the culture is different now with, with people compared to, you know, the generation before with medicine. It's like you kind of get told what to do. And now people are very proactive and want to be knowledgeable and, and really kind of have ownership of their health. And it's so exciting. But we also need to facilitate that and make it, again, digestible. I don't mean to have all these puns, but uh, <laughs> <I love> but, <laughs> to, <laughs> but to give that. And I, I'm just so humbled that people are so, you know, so hungry for that knowledge. Yeah, I love that people are just uh, wanting and willing to learn as well. And particularly, I've seen a huge shift in social media in the last couple of years, people actually understanding what evidence-based science actually means. You know, I see people tagging me in things and being like, Leanne, call them out. There's no research behind that. There's no science behind that. And I love that. That makes me so happy and so proud. Right. It's really exciting. It's true. 
Definitely. So Sanjay, can you can we start off by telling our listeners um, a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and um, what you do on a day-to-day basis as a doctor? My wife and I are both triple specialized and board certified in, in hematology and medical oncology. So hematology is uh, anything pertaining to blood disorders. It can be what we call benign, which means not cancerous. So it can be B12, iron, hemophilias, bleeding disorders, anything in that category. And then we do the malignant heme, which is leukemias and lymphomas. And then we're also medical oncologists to where we, about 50-50, the other half is with you know newly diagnosed breast cancers, colon, et cetera. Uh, we help manage those both in a curative setting as well as in a metastatic setting. And then I, I've kind of gotten really, I guess, enthusiastic recently about trying to recycle this education and information. I notice I'm repeating it every day to one patient, but if I can put it out there on social media, just so that people have that knowledge and even to bring back to their primary doctors and primary doctors to listen um, to help kind of these nuggets of information. So I do that on um, Instagram, TikTok, and, and YouTube, and it's called the Onk Doc. And I'm just, the hope is just to get, you know, disseminate more information that's up to date because I was an internal medicine doctor first. I was a primary doctor. So like I, I know how disconnected I was as an internist, but the gazillion things I was responsible for compared to what I learned as a bl- uh, blood specialist. Totally. Yeah. And what made you interested in going down that route in terms of hematology and oncology? Was it, did you have like a light bulb moment one day or did you always sort of know throughout your whole training and studies that that was where you wanted to end up? Yeah. So I actually wanted to be a, um, a middle school science teacher was the goal at some point. And then in high school, I got into a pretty bad car accident where I lost my eyesight for a while. And mm. it was just, I mean, blurs, I couldn't make out faces and people would ask me afterward the obvious question, like, wasn't it terrifying? And weren't you really afraid you'd never get your vision back? And the answer was, you know, it really was no. Like, I don't remember during that process actually considering that. And when I was like, why wasn't I scared? Because that seems almost silly that I wasn't. I realized it was because my ophthalmologist, Dr. Grenier, the way he explained to me all of the problems as a high school student that was going on, my pressures were elevated because of inflammation and we're bringing the pressures down by, you know, dilating your eyes so that things clear better. He gave me all the goals and he kind of explained what the problems were, uh, which just kept me on track to like, you know, jump hurdle by hurdle. And very early on, I realized, you know, being a science, wanting to be a science teacher, like that doctoring, which the Latin term is, you know, teacher is what doctor means is it really should be about teaching. And when mm-hmm. you, when you're taught something, you're so much stronger. Like I really have seen day in and day out, just amazing strength and courage from, you know, quote unquote, everyday people. They can overcome anything mentally, but that they need to be knowledgeable. If you don't teach them, then it's very scary. It's like being blind in open water. But instead, you open their eyes and stuff, and you can really help them overcome something terrifying like cancer in this circumstance. And I thought there was little as scary as having a cancer diagnosis. We're all shook when we see that so or hear that um, with our family members and ourselves. So that's where I'm very passionate, my wife and I both, to help. She had an experience with her mom where they weren't given all the information. They were told one thing, and then, well, actually, it's in the lymph nodes. And, and so she, she was doing something else entirely, had a master's in, in cell and molecular was teaching university and then went into oncology for the same reason um, uh, with her experiences. So that's our hope. And same on the social media part of it is like, that's where I try to empower with the knowledge because I know so many families suffer from this and just the unknown. So that's really what brought me there is to help them through a very difficult process. 
it is such an overwhelming thing and to have that a that knowledge that you provide and b that just that empathy and that understanding and sort of talking them through that pathway because yeah. I, I know that my mum had some issues with her thyroid a couple of years ago and I remember she went into the doctor and I called her afterwards I was like oh what did she he say and mum's like oh it's fine and I was like what do you mean it's fine like why would did you have to go see a specialist if everything was fine and I was like do you have to go back she's like yeah yeah and I was like well why would you go back if it was fine and she just like got in there and just right. kind of like couldn't remember anything didn't really understand it and then remember I went with her to the next appointment and I had to explain everything to her in um you know much simple terms afterwards because she didn't have that background not saying that I'm a doctor but I'd worked in the hospital system for many years and I understood a lot of the the language and I could ask a few more questions around that as well I think just having that empathy and that understanding for your patients and really breaking that down into simple, simple terms to help them understand that takes away a lot of that shock that they must feel upon those diagnoses as well. Yeah. And, you know, some people, I don't know if it was recording when we talked about it on our intro, but some people, some do prefer just that kind of patriarchal, matriarchal medicine where it's like, I'm actually not worried about it. I trust you and I'm good. You know, I can totally respect that. And there are some of those, but, but I think in our generation, uh, it's way more like, I'm going to be very anxious about this unless I understand. So you do, you know, adapt to the patient, but I've noticed very quickly that people just want to know and they feel better. Even if it's the same news, even if one doctor doesn't explain and, and I spend an hour explaining, even if the, the, the thing is the same, this is the treatment, this is a, you know, survival we're looking at, but here's how we're going to make everything better. You could feel drastically different in just mm-hmm. being told what's going to happen and then explaining everything and how like it's actually a victory because, you know, this would have happened without the treatment and all that stuff, even though nothing changes with that other, you know, the other stuff. And, and that's why mental, you know, headspace and everything is emotional health really sh- needs to be kind of accented or prioritized more, I think, in modern medicine as it evolves so quickly. We need to forget, not forget what we're trying to achieve here. We're all going to pass away. But if we can keep the headspace every quality day, you know, the world, God, whatever you believe gives us, like, it's how you feel at the end of the day for those days that really matter. 100%. Yeah, so incredibly important. Um, you're in very, very, very rewarding field. <laughs> yeah, very humbling, yes. And so let's firstly start, I guess, our podcast by chatting about fatigue, because it's something that, you know, a lot of people, um, I'm sure, come to you and, and they say, hey, doc, you know, I feel tired all of the time. Like, what's up with that? What are your first thoughts when a client or a patient presents to you with just sort of like generalized fatigue? Fatigue is, is one, what we call, you know, in the medical field, a constitutional symptom. So it's one of those that um, obviously objectively can't be measured. You can't put on a blood pressure cuff or, or do a lab work to kind of like just gauge fatigue. So that's where the history is very important. So mm-hmm. if I have a patient that's telling me they're fatigued and it's been going, over, going on over the last two to four weeks or, you know, a month or two, then that's a totally different story than the last two years. Uh, if it's, you know, profound fatigue in the last couple of weeks, I worry about something, what we call metabolically. So something that physiologically or metabolically may be off. Mm -hmm. So like you were saying, like a thyroid problem or what we call an endocrine problem or type one diabetes. There's all kinds of stuff based on the timelines that you want to think about. And that's usually the first place I start. And then of course, like, you know, you want to talk about if it's chronic, like, environmental stressors and and medications and this and that. But by far, the most important thing, if you're going to a doctor about fatigue, you want to make sure that a very comprehensive thorough history was obtained because there's just so many variables, real organic variables to account or, or, or to be causing that fatigue. But if you don't have a good history, it's really hard to even know which path, which world to go down to work it up, you know, appropriately. 
So you're saying the best thing that we can do as sort of like a patient would be to tell our doctor as much as possible and kind of like not leave anything out because the, the better picture you guys have, the easier route that you can go down in terms of having some of those tests done and that sort of thing. Absolutely. But, you know, it really is the, the doctor's responsibility primarily. So I have plenty of people that do right and, and, and breaks my heart. And I know a lot of doctors are overworked, at least in America, we have a huge deficit, but they're like, you know, I was, I talked about it five minutes and, and this, so like, if you don't feel heard, like, you know, I hope you're in a position to be able to speak to another doctor or, or there's like a lot of consultations online now. So a history is just vitally important. So timeline, how long did it happen? Was it associated with other things? Like, have you had weight loss? Have you had mm. appetite loss? Those are very two significant things that dictate one way or another about what I'm thinking as far as fatigue goes. Is there associated diarrhea and GI upset? You know, we know psych, you know, the psycho-emotional health and, and the stomach are very well linked. So there's all kinds of stuff because then I'll start thinking about malabsorption. Maybe you got celiac disease or, or something where you're not absorbing things you need. So yeah, all those details are very important. And, and if you're totally non-medical, it's hard to know what's relevant. So you want somebody asking the right questions as, you know, as they get more history. Mm, definitely. So say for our listeners at home, say someone's listening and they did, um, you know, have a GP that was super busy. They were, you know, 10, 20 other people in the waiting room, they were in, they were out, and they just kind of didn't feel heard, um, maybe unfortunately by their doctor. What would be some quick baseline things that they could go back to another doctor and just get, you know, checked off really quickly, something perhaps like an iron test or something, anything that you would think that's worth investigating from a medical perspective, just to sort of rule out one or two things? Yeah. So outside of history, I mean, first of all, you definitely want, I'm sure it's the same way in Australia, you want to do your basic lab work. I mean, you get, it's covered by insurance, you get an annual, what we call CBC. So complete blood count, like that's very important to rule out scarier things. Mm-hmm. A CBC is going to have your blood level. So like your, the number of red blood cells that carry oxygen. That's the first thing people think about because when you're low, it's called anemia. So like a non-medical person says, well, am I anemic? And we're going to get into that, obviously. <laughs> uh, but you, you want to check that like um, routinely. And then you also want to check, usually in annual blood work comes uh, your liver functions as well as your kidney functions. Those are the things that are covered. Thyroid isn't always covered and all these other things, but at least there, you know, your major organs, your bone marrow, which makes your blood levels, your liver and your kidneys are okay. Then you'd need to, and on the blood count, you would see if you had something like, God forbid, leukemia or circulating, you know, something cancer related that's in the blood world, you usually see that on blood work, not for solid cancers. But then if those all check out, that's where the history then puts you down one pathway to another. So if you're peeing a lot more than usual and you're, you know, in your teenage years and maybe you have type one diabetes because all of a sudden your sugars are high, that also comes in your routine blood work. And again, like we talked about thyroid, so you can go down these different avenues, but you have to be heard. You have to have uh, a GP that's really getting that history so they can go down the lines to be able to work it up further. How do people tell the difference between general fatigue, such as, you know, a new mum at home who's just had a baby and who isn't sleeping well, or someone who's in their final year of school and they're like cramming for all these exams. How do we know the difference between that fatigue, which is probably going to be there because they're, you know, not sleeping that well and they've got a lot going on versus a medical reason for a fatigue? The most important thing is if you really think there's anything medically relevant, you you never want to assume something that is just X, Y, Z and doesn't need to be worked up at the very least. Again, that CBC can be very helpful for, you know, things that are scarier, but that's where with the history as a physician, what I do is I look at timelines. So does the timeline fit? When did, when did your fatigue start? And then when did your new job start? When was your, yeah, did the baby come? When did your night shift start? 
when did you start sleeping poorly? So when you have things that overlap as a physician, sometimes I'm more comforted because I can explain causation. There's something that was introduced, the timeline fits, but I personally have to feel very good about that timeline to not work up other things. Just, you know, not because, Oh, I don't want to miss anything and, and, and overdo it with, with, you know, cost because that's a big problem in healthcare. But if the timeline doesn't fit perfectly, I think it's responsible to look into other things. So the things that are scary with fatigue is if nothing changed in your environment and then all of a sudden you're becoming more fatigued. And then, like I said, appetite and weight loss are two big things that you want to think about or gauge uh, in conjunction with that fatigue. If you notice any problems or changes in your stool, if like it's it's just really dark or black and sticky and, and it's consistent like that, or it's, it's, it's no longer normal bulk, but it's pencil thin, or all of a sudden it's been loose for the last two months and usually it's always solid, that's where you're cueing in like, okay, that's not just fatigue. I'm having an organic, objective, evaluatable, if that's a word, change in conjunction with this constitutional fatigue. So th- those are all objective, right? You can tell the stool is different. You can tell that you have weight loss on a scale. So if you have anything concurrent with that, that's where at least I think it would definitely mandate you know, an evaluation to get more thorough history taking. Mm, absolutely. And one other thing just sort of sprung to my mind as you were mentioning um, other reasons for fatigue as well. It's I get a, quite a lot of um, clients who say to me, you know, I wake up after a really good night's sleep and I'm still exhausted. And for me, that's sort of a bit of a red flag to send them back to their doctor, because if they're consistently having a great night's sleep and they're waking up feeling like they've been hit by a bus, um, that sort of tells me that there's, you know, I know that they're nutritionists on point because they're working with me. I know that, you know, they've had a great night's sleep. And to me that those things don't add up. So maybe that's a, another little tip for our listeners at home that if you are getting that great sleep in and you're still feeling fatigued, probably a good a good reason to touch base with your GP as well, wouldn't it be? Absolutely, yeah. When your cortisol and stress levels are up, not just from emotional stress, but physiologic stress, or there's something metabolically going on that's, that's exhausting, basically you're not running a marathon, but something in you, God forbid, a cancer or whatever, not to scare anybody, but like then that's where that fatigue is constant. 16 hours a day, I want to sleep kind of thing. As well as obviously sleep apnea. That's a big one. When I feel, when I hear Mm. I wake up and I don't feel restored. I mean, sleep apnea is one of the most underrated life changers that you could do. Sleep apnea causes high blood pressure. It causes weight gain. It causes depression. It causes fatigue, you know, throughout the day. It can cause restless leg. And it is severely undertreated. And it just takes a machine. And I've had people in tears afterward being like, I can't believe I went years without knowing I had sleep apnea. Absolutely. I've actually sent two of my friend's husbands off for testing and both of them came back with sleep apnea because like to me, I, I still like to think of myself as young. <laughs> I'm only 31. And, you know, as, as a, I guess, coming through university in my, you know, early twenties, I'd be like, oh, that's something that, you know, affects what 50, 60, 70 year olds. But what would be the youngest patient or client that you've seen with sleep apnea for our listeners at home? It's not something that just quote unquote old people get, is it? It's becoming a lot more prevalent in, in the younger population as well. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, most, most definitely by no means all, but a lot of sleep apnea is weight based. So if you are overweight or even obese on, on the U S standard, at least with a BMI of 25 or 30 above, as well as the neck girth, basically those are more mechanical obstructions. So your soft palate in the back just doesn't open well and it closes when your jaw gets slack. So that is associated with it. But now there's all kinds of centrally acting medications. And by central, I mean like things for anxiety, for depression, sleep aids, those slow down the central nervous system too much to now where you're also having this like these apneic episodes where you're not even undergoing the 
the musculoskeletal mechanics of, of, of breathing properly. Uh, so if you're on Xanax or Ativan at night or you know, PTSD, anything that's centrally active can also cause sleep apnea. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just weight-based, but uh, but it does happen yeah, you know, when you're older, but it's weight primarily as well as the centrally acting medications. Mm, definitely. So probably a good thing to even go and get further investigations with your doctor with if you are, again, as you mentioned, waking up and, and just feeling exhausted after a good night's sleep. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Sanjay. Well, let's uh, let's go deep into iron deficiency anemia. It's a big reason I got you on this podcast because I know that you are just a wealth of knowledge in so many areas. But I have seen so many videos that you've done online talking about iron deficiency, and it, it's they get hundreds, if not you know thousands, of comments from people being like, "Oh, I thought that was normal." Doesn't every young girl have iron deficiency? So you know, I myself did as well when I was quite younger, and I think mine was more diet related. So it was sort of one of those simple fixes. But for our listeners at home, um, you know, it is something that is so common. But can we start first by by letting our listeners know what, what is anemia? What is the definition of anemia? Yeah, so this is one of the things I'm very passionate about kind of debunking, right? And anemia is not a diagnosis in the sense of like diabetes or, you know, hypertension, like, well, maybe hypertension, but like anemia is an observation and all it is it's just a very vague term to mean you do not have a normal number of red blood cells. Your hemoglobin or your hematocrit or your red blood cells are not at the number that's normal for your for your age and your size. And red blood cells carry oxygen and they give you, you know, energy. They help perfuse your muscles when you're working out and things like that. But um, this is the biggest thing. It is never normal to be anemic except in some circumstances with genetic mutations and things like that. But if you can correct an anemia, you should. And iron deficiency is obviously one of the most common reasons for that. Why? Because iron is used as building blocks. The way I describe it to patients is they are bricks. And when I have iron, I can make X number of houses, which are the red blood cells. Mm -hmm. If I have enough bricks, I have enough houses and they're all the normal size. Over time, if I start getting low on iron, my houses start to get smaller. So your red blood cells get smaller. What is that on your lab work? It's what's called MCV, mean corpuscular volume. If you see that that's red and that's low, but you're not anemic, your hemoglobin's normal. That's what cues me in with someone fatigued, they may be iron deficient because their houses are smaller. Well, but I can still have enough houses and they're just smaller. But then eventually when I'm really low on iron, now, now I can't even build enough houses. Mm-hmm. And now I'm anemic. Because now I don't even have the number of red blood cells I'm supposed to slash houses because I don't have the, the iron to give them or bricks. So that's what iron deficiency is, very simply. And you should always have enough bricks to be able to make enough houses or red blood cells to not be anemic because you need to have that level of blood to, you know, run a couple of miles, which I can't do, but if somebody else can or, you know, you know, work out or whatever they need to do. So in terms of anemia, as you mentioned, iron deficiency is one of them, but there are quite a few different types of anemia, aren't there? So many. So there's nutritional anemia. Let's just start very broad, like Mm -hmm. B12, folate, iron deficiency, right? All of these three things, as well as like zinc and copper, but those three, folate, B12, and and iron are absorbed in the small intestine. So right after your stomach, you absorb it in in your small intestine before it goes to the colon. Well, if you have like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease or anything that would, especially Crohn's, anything that causes problems with absorption in that small intestine, celiac disease, um, 
what's called pernicious anemia, where antibodies block B12 coming in. If you had a gastric bypass surgery, anything where you like are not able to absorb will eventually lead to having anemia, as well as your diet. Obviously, if you don't have any products with B12 or if you don't have any products with iron, which I'm sure we'll get to, that can cause anemia. So you have nutritional anemia. Then you have a whole slew of other things that cause anemia that are more problems with the bone marrow itself. That's the home, the bone marrow, that dark red uh, clay looking stuff when you bite a chicken bone in the middle, that's marrow. That's what makes your red blood cells. And so if your kidneys are not telling you are marrow to make enough red blood cells, they're not going to make enough red blood cells. So people with advanced kidney disease are anemic because they don't have the signals to say, hey, make some more. Or the marrow itself is messed up and it's not able to make enough with things like myeloma, myelodysplastics, and all these other things. That's why you see me to see if it's a production problem. So there, every anemia should be worked up. One, because it could be reversible and change the quality of your life. And two, the ways that you get low on iron, the main way for anyone, you know, over 30, 40, 50 is, is blood loss. And so it prompts a workup. Do you have a gastric ulcer? Do you have, God forbid, a very early cancer that could be cured very quickly just by snipping it off, but we're just sitting on it because we don't know. So you really want to work up blood loss uh, in certain populations because blood, obviously, I told you, are the bricks. So you're losing the bricks when they go to the toilet bowl. Absolutely. And I remember just from, um, I was a gastroenterology dietitian before I jumped ship from hospital to my own business. And one of the questions we always used to ask our clients or our patients was, you know, what color is the blood in your stool? Is it black and tarry or is it bright red? Um, and do you want to tell our listeners at home? Because I don't think a lot of people associate those black tarry stools with blood loss. I think we only sort of, if we see fresh blood in the toilet bowl, that's when we think of blood. But there are some more, um, I guess, more dangerous reasons to be looking at your stool and more important reasons to be identifying, you know, what color is your stool and, and actually having a look once you go to the bathroom as well, because so many people don't do it, but it can be a really easy telltale sign of where or why we might be bleeding. So like iron, if you're taking iron, like the pills, then uh, it's going to make your stool black. So that happens a lot. But if you're not, the reason it gets black is if it, you're bleeding in the stomach or somewhere really high up in your GI tract. So GI tract, it's just it's nothing fancy. You put something in your mouth, it goes all the way down the tube and all the way down the plumbing and comes out, out, out the rear end. It's just a fancy, a very fancy tubing, basically, or pipe. So if you're bleeding way up the t- at the top, obviously, then you're still in your stomach, you're metabolizing, you're breaking it down, you're using the good products in the red blood cells like you would if you were eating anything. It's just like, ooh, I got something in, I'm going to start breaking it down and absorbing what I need. And so when you have those broke down, broken down products, then that's what turn, makes it black and sticky by the time you get down to the bottom. Mm-hmm. When you get into your colon, your large intestine, by then there's not a whole lot of absorption and breaking down in the colon. That's mostly just for water. That's where like your, your colon's like, ooh, I'm, I'm dehydrated. Let me make my stool really dry and make you really constipated. That's, what, <laughs> that's why it happens when you're dehydrated is because they turn into little rocks in your colon. So if you're bleeding there or at the very beginning of the colon, well, now the very, towards the very end, this could be more fresh red. So because it's like it doesn't have that far to come out the rear end. So it's, it's bleeding and then you're seeing the product of the bleeding. But if you're in the colon early, right where it comes from the small intestine into the early colon, then it might be mixed up a little bit more and muddy red and stuff. So that's that's all it is. If you think about it, you got a transit time and um, how long it takes is going to dictate or change kind of what it looks like. Definitely. But probably all, I mean, as you mentioned, if you're taking iron tablets, chances are your stools will be quite dark and black. But if you're not taking iron tablets and you do have those black tarry stools, probably a good, uh, I guess, indication that you need to pop along and, and definitely see your doctor. Oh, yeah. And especially 
even if before you can get in, if you're somebody that's taking, I don't know what the Australian terms are, but like ibuprofen, Advil, leave, mm-hmm. aspirin, mm-hmm. if you're taking a bunch of any stuff like on a daily basis, especially multiple times, uh, you would probably consult your doctor, of course, not medical advice, but you probably want to stop that because those are notorious for causing thinning uh, in the stomach and basically eliciting bleeds. So a lot of them I'll ask, how much ibuprofen do you take? And they're like, oh, I take three a day, you know, or three, four times a day. And sure enough, they're anemic and stuff. I'm like, well, let's hold off. Even before I can put a scope down from a GI doctor, let's just hold off on that. So also in lab work, you'll see something called BUN. So people look in the chemistry, it's like creatinine for your kidney function. But the BUN, if you're not dehydrated and it's high, that's often a tip off that some urea products from red blood cells that are being digested in the stomach are going up. So if you look, you're anemic, your BUN's high, and you're not sure why, because you're really well hydrated. That's something that tips us off as well for an upper GI bleed, meaning not in the colon. I love all your um, explanations. You just make it sound so simple. <laughs> <laughs> it <laughs> like really, really is. That's why, I mean, it is. That's why people are like, oh, you're a doctor. This and that. It, it, doctoring, for the most part, is just, it's hard for me to accept those things because it, honestly, it's just it, everything is very simple. It's just the amount of time it takes to have to, you know, kind of learn them. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so happy that we're having this conversation around, you know, something simple like anemia, because as we mentioned, so many people think it, that it's just totally normal. But I love how many myths you're busting in terms of everything, you know, has a reason or there's sort of a reason for for being that way. It's not something it that we should be. just live with and be like, oh, I've got low iron or oh, I'm anemic. That's just me or it runs in my family or it's genetic or whatever. It, uh, you're giving us a lot of different clues and insights into the different things we can take back to our doctors and say, hey, I want some further investigations because I've been anemic for X amount of years and I'm just sick of taking iron tablets, which is something that I get from so many of my clients. It's like, yeah, I've been taking iron for like five years now. And I'm like, that's not normal. <laughs> right. Yeah, hundred percent. And the genetic one really bothers me. It's like, oh, my whole family runs anemic. Like that one would get under my skin because again, it's just, unless you have something that a hematologist told you, a thalassemia. So you have a problem with the way that the houses look and all this stuff. If you have a true like thalassemia or some kind of genetic mutation in your red blood cell, sure. But short of that, when they say it runs in my family, they mean all the women have what's called fibroids in their uterus. So they are heavy bleeders. So all of, especially in the African-American population here. So yeah, they're probably all running at nine or 10 because no one's correcting it. Every anemia should be corrected if there's iron deficiency. Let me mm-hmm. make that very clear, especially for the female listeners. You don't just ride out iron deficiency anemia until you're 50 and your cycle stop. What craziness is that? If there were means for us to replace your iron, which there are both in the IV and uh, by mouth, you replace the iron and the bricks until you can make red enough red blood cells. If I don't care how much you're bleeding, there are ways in modern medicine we can send someone to the moon that we can get your iron in to be able to keep up or regulate your cycle so that you don't lose as much to be normal. You shouldn't have to wait till menopause to be able to like have a normal hemoglobin. That's ridiculous. Definitely. Yeah, it's a long time. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of anemia, besides the fatigue that we mentioned at the start of the podcast, what are some other major, I guess, like symptoms where people may be anemic? So one of them I get really excited about because I've already started getting comments now that it's been two or three weeks into my some of my videos. They're like, I cannot believe my restless legs are gone because of a TikTok I saw. They're like, I started iron. I went to my doctor. They said I was anemic. They said it was, you know, to watch it. And then my restless legs is gone. I had one lady that was literally, she was actually my personal patient, but she's like, I would have bruises. I would sleep two to three hours from my restless legs. And she's like, gone. I had to give it to her IV because she had problem absorbing it. 
but that's a big one that's kind of uh, underrated, restless legs. Now, there are a lot of causes for restless legs that are not iron related. Mm-hmm. But if you are anemic and iron deficient, uh, it's very possible, especially if the timeline fits, which is why history is so big. When did you become anemic? When did your restless legs start? Then uh, that's one thing that can really change. And as well as sleep apnea, actually sleep apnea causes restless legs as well. If you're iron deficient, fatigue is is that shortness of breath and long windedness when you're walking around. Um, there's something called pica, which I hope nobody's being insensitive when, when about the humor, but you really do kind of. Some people crave dirt, like soil or like laundry mm-hmm. detergent. Ice is a big one. People are like, I need ice all the time, etc. And sure enough, I told my doctor that I have my, I have iron deficiency. That's why I chew ice. I'm like, did we fix iron deficiency? No, I still chew ice. So like. That is a sign. Why evolutionarily or adaptively that happened, I'm not sure. They say for the soil because, like, there may be some iron, you know, in the soil. Actually, that that, that maybe that's why we have that reflex. But that's called pica to like want to eat weird things, basically, um, and it is yeah. natural and it's very heavily associated with that. And then, you know, people say bruising. I mean, I guess to a degree, but it's not like as hard as what people seem to say it is. Like, oh, if you're bruising, you're iron deficient. That's not. There's a lot of reasons for bruising as well. And then, yeah, being cold, cold extremities and stuff, you have to be pretty anemic for that, but you can have cold extremities. And then especially if you're sitting up and getting lightheaded, if it's not a blood pressure issue mm. uh, and you run anemic, that you might be too anemic if you're not able to get your wits right when you sit up because your blood is having that much trouble getting up there. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I remember um, back in my young sort of teenage years, early 20s, when I was quite severely anemic, I'd stand up and almost feel like I had to sort of want to faint kind of thing. Like I'd stand up and have right. to sort of hold onto the wall for two or three seconds, kind of get my bearings about me. Then I could kind of start walking because I felt like if I started walking straight away, I'd almost want to pass out. And um, heart palpitations was the other thing I really experienced. Like I felt like my yes. heart would always um, like race really fast. And I was like, this is so weird. Like I'm a young, fit, healthy 20 year old. What is going on? And it wasn't until I, you know, fully had my iron replaced and back to normal levels where those two things just went away. And I used to think I'm quite tall. I'm six foot one used to think that, Oh, it was just something to do with my height, which is why I stood up and, you know, kind of felt like I wanted to pass out every time, but again, not normal. (laughs) No, not normal. And yeah, palpitations definitely is one of them. I'm really glad you said that. So in terms of anemia, uh, we've mentioned, you know, young women quite a lot in different sort of ethnic population groups. Is there anyone else who you would think is, is a big risk factor for anemia or any, any, um, I guess like conditions or population groups that you would sort of think would be more at risk than, than other people? So for iron deficiency anemia, sure. Like, uh, African Americans here at least have fibroids and heavy bleeding, uh, women that have cycles. So they're obviously a very high risk as far as the, um, the blood loss goes or anyone over 60, 65, when you start having, you know, these little non-specific bleedings in your GI tract. Another com- another reason for iron deficiency anemia is like we said, uh, any like gastric surgeries or any populations that have any, not any stomach surgeries, like if your gallbladder's out, it doesn't matter. But if they did anything to your stomach or your small intestine, that is relevant. If you have autoimmune diseases, so if you have like thyroid problems, if you have lupus, if you have a whole slew of, you know, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, all of these mess with your absorption. So those populations, if you're seeing a rheumatologist or you're seeing a GI doctor for these things, you're going to be at high risk for iron deficiency. And then you have people and like celiac disease and stuff, which is not that common, but but it could definitely be a thing if you're noticing GI problems. Then you have, of course, the people that are like, I say, of course, I guess a lot of people don't know this, but it's anemia just from B12 deficiency. So people that are strict vegetarians, they don't get enough B12. 
Now that symptom profile is going to be different. With B12, it really affects your nerve endings. So you can get numbness and tingling in your hands and feet. Mm. I'm sure somebody's listening to this and be like, oh my gosh, I have B12 deficiency. Not necessarily. There's a lot of reasons <laughs> for those. But it is notorious if you have B12 deficiency to have neuropathy in your hands and feet. I don't know if you all use the same term metformin, but metformin is an extremely common drug here uh, for diabetes or prediabetes. It is notorious for B12 deficiency. Mm -hmm. We say that very clearly, up to 30% by some literature studies. What happens? People are diabetic. They already have neuropathy. So they're written off 5, 10, 20 years. Oh, you're diabetic. is diabetic neuropathy. And nobody checks the B12 despite the anemia. If you have anemia and you're B12 deficient, and this time, or, or excuse me, and you're on metformin, but this time your blood cells are big instead of small. Mm-hmm. So MCV, the, the size of your cells, small is iron. Big, we think of B12 and folate deficiency. Those are two that cause big red blood cells. If I see that and I see someone on metformin, I check it, Not, let's say four out of 10 times, it's going to be B12 deficient. And that's so important because that can be irreversible. You get dementia, and you get an inability to walk to the point I've seen patients on canes just from B12 deficiency. But then for some reason, they usually come off, but it's known to be irreversible. So that's B12 deficiency and folate, obviously, uh, for pregnant women, you definitely want to be on folic acid. So those are the kind of common, I guess, demographics, depending on the kind of anemia you're talking about. Mm, and so interesting, you mentioned the B12, because when I used to work at the hospital, I did one of the acute medical wards and the amount of elderly patients that would present with just confusion and they couldn't walk properly. And exactly. essentially they were on what we would call like a tea and toast diet because they lived by themselves. Their um, husband or wife had passed away many years before. They didn't want to cook for the, just themselves. So they were just literally eating tea and toast with every meal. So they had quite right. a lot of deficiencies and they had the tingling, the numbness. And they were like, oh, I thought it was just because I was old and that confusion. And their family members were saying, you know, they need to go into a nursing home because they're not cognitively as able um, as they were a few years ago. But then again, we've seen it happened before where you improve the deficiencies and everything improves kind of thing. So we used to see it a lot in the elderly population that just lived by themselves because it was purely a nutritional deficiency where they just weren't eating, eating those nutrients because they weren't cooking proper meals for themselves, sadly. A hundred percent. And you, and you have people that have what's called pernicious anemia too, that causes antibodies to where they can't absorb B12. So even if you have all the right diet, but you have other, again, autoimmune or rheumatology disorders, you can develop an antibody to not be able to absorb B12. But yeah, extraordinarily common uh, common in the elderly population, which is why we say it's not as much folate deficiency because a lot of tea and toast or cereal and toast. So a lot of cereal is fortified with folate. So yes. they usually don't get deficient on that. But at least the um, B12 is, is a big one and such a it's so one you don't want to miss because in that population... It's easy to go to dementia. It's easy to go to neuropathy when you're older. And yet it's just this B12 supplement that you could have dad or mom or, you know, grand, granddad back, you know, way more than, than what you would have if you didn't treat it. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that, and my favorite thing about like podcasting with experts such as yourself is that there might be someone listening on the other side of the world who just picked up this thing and they're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to take my, my grandma and my granddad to the doctors and just get some, you know, simple blood work. And it could be something as simple as, you know, just a few, you know, B12 tablets or an injection of iron or something like that, which can absolutely change the quality of their life by simply listening to a podcast like this on the other side of the world. Exactly. That's exactly what brought me to social media. I told myself if it's ever just like primarily in vain that I'm just, I'm done because, you know, so happy and blessed at home with my kids and family and everything. But the main thing is not only could, like it is, it already is. I've already gotten the messages and you especially are 
a whole stratosphere above me as far as like reach and stuff. And you're doing that and you're changing the trajectory of someone's lives for decades, potentially just by a tidbit nugget of knowledge, you know, with something like this, it's really extraordinary. Love it. So blessed to have you on today. (laughs) So in terms of um, anemia, I wanted to ask one more thing, Sanjay, around like complications. I feel like it's such a, you know, iron deficiency anemia. So I'll be more more specific. You know, people say, oh, you know, I'm iron deficient. It's just me or it's just who I am. Or I just, you know, occasionally take my tablets, sometimes forget. What are some of the complications that can come out of iron deficiency anemia? And why is it important that we actually correct it? You you know, you've said a few times, it is really important that we correct this. We don't just leave it so that you're constantly iron deficient what are some of the reasons and and why is it important that we do correct simple things like iron deficiency anemia so it's not as bad permanently as b12 and folate deficiencies that can cause like actual central nervous you know nerve stuff permanently but i think it's also we even don't know fully exactly how much iron benefits people at the very least to, to when you have your stores replete with iron, I know for a fact, I see it all the time my patients, even if they're not even anemic yet, but they're just iron deficient. I've had people, so you have the bricks, fewer bricks, but you have enough red blood cells to not be red on your blood work on your hemoglobin hematocrit. So somebody may tell you, oh, you're not anemic, you're not, or you're not iron deficient because you're not anemic. That's not true. You may be iron deficient. You're just not iron deficient enough to have like few uh, red blood cells. But there have been studies that showed that people you know, statistically significant, have an improvement in their quality of life and their fatigue and their tiredness just with repleting iron, even if they're not to the point of anemia yet. So that's number one. And then number two, like iron is, is used metabolically in a, you know, in several roles in your body. Um, again, ones you may not necessarily know outside of the constitutional stuff with fatigue and restless leg and these very subtle things, but you want to be replete. I mean, that's why they're called normal values. You want to have enough blood. And if you're older, what can happen is, it can start putting a stress on your heart, maybe like even depending on how iron deficient you were. Some people actually go into like, you know, atrial fibrillation when they're older and stuff because they're not getting proper perfusion, meaning the delivery of oxygen to every single heart cell. So when you have an arrhythmia, it's interesting. Your heart cells are the only ones that if you took off out of the body with a needle and put it on a Petri dish, it'll still beat by itself. It doesn't need something from the brain telling it to move unlike everything else in your body it has its own intrinsic beat it's just slow and so you have a node in your heart that actually beats faster and and all the people follow suit well if one gets pissed off and and doesn't get enough oxygen and gets irritable they're going to cause a ruckus and they're going to start firing and that's sometimes what's atrial fibrillation Mm -hmm. uh and occasionally palpitations to one degree one just decides to get overexcited and falls right back in line uh so that stuff can happen with having low blood uh, low iron, low oxygen delivery. And some people, if they get anemic enough, they'll get, you know, even mild strokes or dementia because the blood just can't get delivered to those parts of the brain way up where there's, the, you know, very small vessels to get there. So as you get older, it's bad for that reason too. But Wow. Yeah. So some quite severe complications, you know, it might only be in, you know, a, a few or a small percentage, but still, you know, quite severe complications just from, from doing something simple like repleting iron stores. The main reason I stress it is more just constitutional stuff. Like if you, you know, just, I think it improves quality of life. I don't want anyone listening, freaking out, thinking like if they're young, they're like, oh, I'm anemic, my hemoglobin's 11 or 10 or I'm iron deficient, I could have a stroke. Like that's extraordinarily unlikely. So it's not in that age group, um, unless you're profoundly anemic, those examples of stroke and, and heart attack and AFib is really when your blood's pretty low, usually almost in a, in a bleeding situation. But yeah, it just helps the overall health of like you know, muscle and and 
dilation and relaxation of your blood vessels and clearing that lymph and toxin stuff after a workout, all that stuff like is magnesium and some of these metals and stuff. All right, Sanjay, well, to end our podcast, I think we should probably quickly chat about nutrition because, you know, we are talking about, we did mostly talk about iron deficiency. Um, So I think we should probably mention a few things in terms of nutrition wise. So we did chat quickly when we were off the podcast more about, um, you know, sometimes doctors will prescribe iron tablets, but a patient's iron's not coming up because they're taking the iron tablets with what we might call an iron blocker. So something like tea and coffee and the tannins in tea and coffee, even if it's decaf, can actually block the absorption of that iron. Um, and if you're following more of a plant-based diet, you know, there are two types of, of iron. There's our heme iron and our non-heme iron. So if you're following more of a plant-based diet, you don't eat a any or a lot of animal-based products. If you're getting your iron more from the plant-based sources, it's actually a little bit harder for the body to absorb. So definitely we generally recommend as dietitians taking a vitamin C source with your iron tablet or with any plant-based iron sources. So, you know, dark green leafy veggies are a great source of iron, but actually pairing that with a vitamin C source like tomatoes or oranges or some capsicum is actually a really great idea to just boost and improve that overall iron intake as well. So I thought I should probably interject with a little bit of nutrition (laughs) when we're talking about iron deficiencies. Um, But my final question for you is, um, and I have seen this a couple of times in my clients where they are actually eating plenty of red meat or they do actually have quite a great balanced diet, yet they are still suffering from iron deficiency anemia and they are on tablets long-term. Is that something that you do see where you've kind of checked off all the boxes, you've covered all your bases and tests. There's nothing that's really coming back to show you that there's another reason, but the, the diet sort of looks good. Is there any other, I guess, like thoughts you might have around that where you've sort of done a lot of the testing, you know, they don't have celiac disease, they don't have malabsorption, sort of issues or autoimmune conditions. Their diet looks pretty good, yet for some reason they still have iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia. Do you see that regularly? It's not common. So mm. like when, when we rule it out, by saying rule out, what that would mean is you know, I send my patients for what's called an EGD and a colonoscopy. So they get a scope put in, make sure they don't have any, obviously blood loss, I keep saying is the big one. And let me not forget, you also want to pee in a cup, even if you can't see the uh, red, you know, blood in your urine, you could have a lesion in your bladder or your kidney. That's just every time just putting out some red blood cells. So you can get iron deficient from loss in your urine as well. So that's important to check. But you look for any sites of bleeding. So you rule that out. And then a lot of times I'll ask the GI doctor, which usually they do it themselves anyway, to take a biopsy of the actual small intestine. So you can look at the, you know, muco, you could, the ciliary parts and, and the membrane because you can see changes there where it may impair absorption. It's not common where I, where we say there's no blood loss and there's no signs on a biopsy or in visualization of uh, impaired absorption to explain the iron deficiency. But it, it happens, certainly, of course, it happens. It's okay to always need iron supplementation if the conclusion has been malabsorption. So in that setting, you still, you know, the exclusion, the diagnosis exclusion is you're still just not absorbing it well. So it's okay to need iron tablets once you've ruled out all the scary things. That's Mm -hmm. the key. Mm -hmm. And if you're menstruating and you don't want to get put on birth control because of weight gain or whatever, it's okay to be on iron tablets for 30 years because we know where it's going. So once you have the diagnosis, Again, absorption too, that, that's okay. It, it is unusual, but it's good to be supplemented. Now, the big thing that we didn't talk about is if it's still in, insufficient or if you, a lot of people get a really bad abdominal pain with iron tablets, believe mm-hmm. it or not. So my wife's a hematologist, extraordinarily smart, 99% on her boards. She took it a couple of times while she was pregnant 
before realizing she was doubled over thinking that it was from the from gestation but it was actually that she was like it's the iron tablet so now anytime she has her patients which is all the time i can't tolerate it she's like my empathy is through the roof because i've experienced that and there's different formulations and you want to talk to your doctor but that happens so in those settings as well as the ones where we just you just cannot absorb it well that's where you want to think about um uh, seeing a hematologist, we can give it IV. We can give you huge doses in the vein that last you several, several months. Mm. And the other thing is some people, like a lot of people were taking um, a lot of zinc supplementation because of COVID because there was this anecdotal thing like, oh, it's going to help with COVID symptoms. Mm. Well, that impaired magnesium absorption. Uh, so people started getting low on their uh, mag or their other divalent ions because there's a lot of competitive absorption between these metals. They all they all use the same transit system, same bus. The bus is full, you can't get in there. So you want to be sure that the, if you're taking a whole bunch of supplements, the timing of them to make sure they're not competing to be absorbed uh, at the time of entry. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really important point that when a lot of people do take nutritional supplementations alongside other types of medications as well. It's always touching base with your doctor or even um, your pharmacist just to check those those interactions between medications and simple things like vitamin and nutrient supplements. Everyone thinks, oh, it's just, you know, vitamin, whatever it is you're taking or some iron, like it's not going to do me any harm, but they do interact with other medications quite often, don't they? Oh, big time. And I think I might have said it backwards. People are taking mag and it's, it's impairing zinc. But obviously, they both compete with each other. But yeah, that's 100% right. You really want, that's why as an oncologist, especially with chemo and oral chemo that I give, um, like I need to know about anything. St. Jordan's wart like messes up with a lot of my chemotherapy dosing. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of these uh, things that I'm not going to say don't work like I'm a medical doctor until it's FDA approved. But there's very convincing, well done data that suggests that a lot of these things can assist, you know, significantly in physical and in mental health is just navigating those waters in conjunction with other stuff that's messing with the enzymes that you're getting from your doctor. That's where it gets tricky. And everyone obviously like has different dosings that make their body happy. So it gets tricky, but if anyone just dismisses like, Oh, supplements, herbals, they don't work. If somebody on the medical field says that, I hope you would encourage them as a patient to read because the literature is there and the same standards in that literature is, is the stuff I use, you know, for my FDA approved chemotherapy and other things. Mm, definitely. And I think the most important thing as our listeners um, or myself, you know, as a patient or a client as well, is just disclosing everything to our doctor. Because even the simple things that we think, oh, that won't matter, um, can actually sometimes have quite a profound effect from an interaction or a medication or a, just a treatment perspective, can't they? 100%. Absolutely. Great. Well, Sanjay, my final, final, final question for you is really as an oncology doctor, um, what are your best tips to keep us, you know, healthy and in tip top shape? Because as I understand, there are a lot of cancers and there's a lot of really strong research behind it that a lot of cancers are more those lifestyle type cancers that can actually be prevented from a great healthy lifestyle. So what would your tips be as a great oncology doctor for just maintaining um, a good, healthy lifestyle that can help with some of these preventative type cancers? Well, one thing I'm going to say to, to disclaim, which you know this with your oncology training, but it really kills me when, and this is, you're absolutely right, most of our lifestyle, but there are certainly cancers that exist that have nothing to do with lifestyle. And mm -hmm. I had a couple of comments that says, well, isn't it just unhealthy people that get cancer? And it like makes me sick because yeah. you have glioblastoma and you have pediatric cancers. There's so many cancers that are not lifestyle related. So if mm -hmm. anyone's still in 2021 thinking that cancer is solely based on environmental choices like there's of course sunlight you can't fix and pollutants but but it is by no means all of it is by you know, lifestyle now with that mm -hmm. said you're absolutely right a lot of them all factors just from you know cars existing and stuff we know those all basically 
you know, with a wrench knocking on the outside of the cell, they all kind of invite mutations. And that's what cancer is. It was a normal cell. That's what people don't, you know, I think have a hard time understanding. It's a normal cell that just over replication over time, got a few errors that went un- unseen and then all of a sudden became this thing that doesn't know when to shut off or grow too fast. When does that happen? Things like with inflammation and also things, well, let's just start with inflammation. So like if you have really high sugars your whole life, if you drink alcohol, all of these things, unfortunately, they do invite the study show like a higher chance of cancer. With that said, the flip side is I have patients that are dying in their 20s and 30s every day or every you know month. And it's hard for me. And I realize how finite life is. So knowing that alcohol makes you have an increased chance of cancer, do I never drink alcohol? No, like I still enjoy having a cocktail with my wife when we go out and stuff. So it's all within reason. But sure, alcohol, smoking is a humongous like invitation just because of the inflammation and damage it causes, obviously. Those things, especially drinking and smoking, both cause a, a lot of cancers. Now, there's a lot of data that says like, you know, smoked meats and things like that. Again, things that are caustic or things that kind of damage things can cause cancer as well. Mercury, leads, all these kind of things. That's why I say watch your mercury intake. Anything that invites mutational damage. The big stressor is obviously antioxidants. Why? Because antioxidants is just a fancy term, not a fancy term, but antioxidants help reduce damage. That's mm-hmm. why they work. So like, that's very binary. It's not overcomplicated. Cancers happen because there's damage and inflammation and, and errors. Antioxidants can help placate or alleviate that damage. And so that's why you, you don't want to go crazy, but that's why the green teas help and the fruits and vegetables and stuff like that, because you're kind of neutralizing what otherwise would be on a DNA level damage. And exercise, that's another thing. It really does help. It's not necessarily that you're a BMI of, of 17, that's a whole other topic, but having obesity around your stomach does also elevate cancers, they say, metabolic syndrome. But exercise helps because, again, the oxidative control, getting that lymphedema, which has toxins built up when you have a cramp or you're sore, like you want to mobilize that stuff. Why? Because it will cause damage you know, around the cells in that area. So it all goes back to that. But exercise helps move that around. It helps bring more oxygen and delivery of, of good cells to go to every little corner of your body to help repair those things and circulate them out that are bad. I'm sorry, that was an extremely long and not glamorous answer, but but that is very fundamentally where, how cancer happens and, and why these things help. No, I loved it. And I love that as what I practice as a dietitian is what I call holistic health. I focus on stress. I focus on environmental triggers. I focus on nutrition, of course, and exercise and different lifestyle factors like getting enough sleep and managing our stress levels. And I think that hearing that from someone like yourself, like an oncology doctor, it helps prevent cancers, but also helps us be healthy as well. Is so incredibly important because I think a lot of people, it's so underemphasized how important sleep is and how important eating a diversity of foods are because to get in a great range of antioxidants, you need as much color as possible. And I have so many patients who might quote unquote eat healthy, but they eat the same thing for breakfast every day, the same thing for lunch every day, the same thing for dinner every day. And it might quote unquote fit their macros and be healthy, but you're not getting in that diversity that allows you to get in the different vitamins and minerals and nutrients and antioxidants and polyphenols and all of that good stuff that can help to prevent potentially some of these cancers and some of these other lifestyle related diseases long-term. So I loved hearing it from your mouth as well. We're definitely on the same page there in terms of holistic health being so incredibly important for so many things. Right. They all reduce the invitation to develop cancer. If you want to think of it that way, it's like, it's like your, the invitation is always going to be the longer you live, the invitation gets stronger and stronger. That's why Mm -hmm. cancer is generally by far a disease process of the elderly because you're just inviting longer over time, more bad things that you t- eat and all this stuff. 
but all of these things help that, especially like you said, like meditation and, and exercise that help mobilize that stuff. And I need to learn more about it. We don't get much education as doctors, which is why you don't hear about it much, at least in the American system. We get it. It's a course in med school, basically. But unless you have a degree, it's severely under appreciated and, and prioritized. And there's a whole lot of gaps. It's a different podcast on, on how we can do more right to the patient. At the end of the day, the patient is the one suffering and there's a lot of stuff that needs to come together. Wonderful. We could do, a whole, as you mentioned, a whole nother podcast and so many other topics, but we will leave it there, Sanjay. I know that you're incredibly busy, um, so I won't take up any more of your time, but where can our listeners um, reach out to you? Where can they follow you on social media? Um, how can they you know, potentially ask you some questions that you might be able to create some great TikTok videos to? Where can we find you online? Yeah, so uh, Instagram and TikTok and YouTube are all the Onc Doc, O-N-C for oncology, D-O-C, and yeah, I put out content, I put educational stuff up there. I do visit the messages as, soon, as often as I can to be able to create more content that people desire. Um, and then drpedia.com, that's uh, where I, it's a startup that we're doing to basically give a ton of education to you about these things without having to sift through the worldwide web, you know, of, of fact and fiction. They're all doctors that it's free. They're little videos that explain like gallbladder surgery or, or B12 or COVID. And we just want to have a resource that's reliable from specialists around the world to be able to give you information. You go to drpedia.com, you search what you're worried about or wanting to learn. And we're developing that to just try to bridge that gap of like a ton of information that's hard to navigate. Doctors don't have enough time, they're overworked, it's hard to stay up to date on education. And not just that, there are other sites too, but but we need to, patients, unfortunately, all of us, me as a patient too, like just require more education due to until these other things get fixed in healthcare. (laughs) I love that. And it's a, I think it's a great resource. Can I clarify? Was it drstartup.com? Sorry, it's Doctorpedia. Doctorpedia. Yeah, it's a startup company, but we've, yeah. we're, I think we have over 100 doctors now and thousands of videos and it's doctorpedia.com. And, and whatever feedback you have on that, especially please contact us because we just, it's a service for you. We want to, we want you to have the stress of reading the right stuff or wrong stuff alleviated. And that's what we're trying to accomplish there. Absolutely. So drpedia.com, I will link that in our show notes for our listeners so they can just click it and go straight there. Um, and I think that's a wonderful resource. You know, it's so much better than jumping on, you know, Dr. Google and, and seeing, you know, what are my symptoms and getting all of these horrible cascade of diseases when, as you mentioned, it could be something super, super simple. Um, so I think yes. that going and having an evidence base, a place which, you know, a, a website written by doctors for the public is, is such an important resource. So I'll definitely help you get that one out there and encourage our listeners to, to go and visit that and, and have a bit of a browse as well. Awesome. Thank you. I really hope it helps people. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Sanjay, for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been an awesome chat, um, which I knew it would be. And listeners, I'd really encourage you to go and follow Sanjay online. He is at the Onk Doc. He doesn't just post about, um, you know, hematology or oncology. He posts a lot about really, really relevant things, whether you're, you know, 14 years old or whether you're 45 or 80 years old. I think you'll find his content really, really relevant and helpful, um, no matter what your age or, um, you know, different conditions that you're suffering from. So please go and throw Sanjay a follow and um, again thank you so much for coming on the podcast Um, it's been a blast thank you so much for having me it was really an honor to sit in front of you and everyone listening I really am just inspired and humbled by people that you know especially I don't think I had that discipline until my late 20s and if you're doing that and you're younger I mean you're you're going to be more successful than I am it's an amazing thing to care about these things and you Leanne for providing it so thank you very much